You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hi, I'm Deep Tran, senior editor at American Theater Magazine. I'm Jose Solis, a freelance theater critic, and we're your token theater friends, people who love theater and will see it even when it's negative degrees outside. <laughs> What did you see? Okay, I have to admit though, I didn't see very much when it was negative degrees outside. What did you see when it was negative degrees outside? Kelly O'Hara. And kiss me, Kate. No, she was doing a benefit show at Feinstein's Fifty Four Below, which it felt like it was Fifty Four Below. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> But I also went to see uh, the courtroom. Oh, okay. Yeah, one of those days. Oh, I I did too. Yeah, me too. Oh, I forgot about. Oh, I forgot how cold it was that day because that show was just so good. <laughs> And yeah, like our brains probably froze because I was yeah I was like an, a popsicle when I arrived to the show, which is wonderful because we are going to be talking to Ariane Moyed later on this episode. So yay, yay! Uh, we'll give you the intro to him in a little bit, but first up, let's review some shows. What are we talking about today? Our three shows for today are uh, first up we have Master of the Crossroads at the Bridge Theater. Next we have Behind the Sheet at Ensemble Studio Theater, and finally we have God Said This at Primary Stages. Yeah, it's an all off Broadway, all POC playwrights this episode with varying degrees of success. But you know what? That is great because I support. People of color's rights to be mediocre. Yep. In Paul Calderon's Master of the Crossroads, we meet three characters. First up, we have Jimbo, an African American man who's on his way to church when he gets interrupted by Yolanda, who's a white woman who used to be in a relationship with Jimbo's brother, and Jimbo's brother, Cornbread. Came back from a war, apparently. Well, I think they're both veterans. We find out, right? And Cornbread, however, is going through like severe PTSD, mm-hmm. and Yolanda informs Jimbo that Cornbread currently has a quote unquote Spanish man trapped, locked. And gagged in his apartment, and he's about to do some really horrible things to him. So she begs this guy to go basically save his brother and save the guy who's been kidnapped. And off goes Jimbo to what then turns into this strange, very surreal, very violent oh my God, play so violent. about masculinity and it all takes place in a very very tight theater Ooh. at Shetler Studios mm-hmm. which in many ways It's like 50 seats yeah where, where, where were you I was on the front row oh geez so sweetie I didn't know I didn't know oh my they didn't warn you they warned me no one warned me oh. yeah and there was like a point where 
there was was like a fake rifle pointing at me and i was like oh my god like i'm terrified of guns like i don't like guns if i see Mm -hmm. a gun i shit my pants i'm not gonna lie Uh, and the thing is like we're not like we're not amateurs at this we can handle violence in front of us and sexuality it's more like it was just a lot happening in 80 minutes yeah i mean i just want to commend all of the actors, but especially, I, I just want to give a shout out to Obi Abili, who plays Jimbo, because you, he did so much, and it was such a raw performance, and this house is tiny enough where you could see every bead of sweat on his back. I, I did not regret going, because I never regret going to the theater, but I left really uncomfortable, and I wasn't sure that it was what I wanted to see that night. However, I am very grateful that... Paul Calderon is putting the, is saying the things that the play has to say. Yeah, because I mean, you know, despite beyond like the whole like toxic masculinity thing and all of that, he brought to the surface how America constantly asks African American men to not be African American men. It sends them to wars and then they come back. And they have no rights because they're black. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like we see in the play how the two brothers are very influenced by religion and how religion under the dress of war and toxic masculinity and just living in America as a person of color, religion becomes like extremism and they go crazy. I mean, Right. I don't know. Crazy is probably not the most politically correct term, but people go insane Mm -hmm. when when they come to a country where they have sacrificed so much for and they realize they're still second class citizens. Mm -hmm. So I understood the plight of both men because remember, they often talk about uh, Cornbread often talks about how he's not black. And he's angry that his brother thinks of himself as black. And I just found that to be really heartbreaking. Besides all the stress that I was under watching the play, I I just really found it to be very, very sad. Right. I think uh, the thing about, you know, Paul Calderon's a veteran and he, you know, co-founded the Labyrinth Theater Company. This is a person who knows his craft. And so I was really surprised when I, after I finished, where there were so many... There was like a kernel of a really great idea and struggle, but it was just, it was like you put too much ingredients in the soup and it just becomes like an overwhelming amount of flavor. The play went from zero to a hundred on the emotional scale very quickly. I love a good play that challenges you, but I think like, the the foundations that he laid for why all the characters were in the situation that they were, there wasn't enough. You're just plopped into the situation where you all take it for granted that, of course, they're, PT, they're veterans, they have PTSD, so therefore, and they're black, therefore they have to be this way. So it came off to me as more like tropes rather than characters. Hmm. I, I feel like I had a lot of room to breathe within the story. Mm-hmm. I completely agree they were tropes. But I think that within those tropes, 
not within. I think those tropes, but what he wanted to show us. I don't think he wanted to show us like any like naturalistic, like, mm-hmm. uh, or any like realism kind of thing. It's, you know, like, it's like at one point a man's like uh, building a cross. So that to, he could crucify. Yeah. Someone gets crucified. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a play that works on, you know, subtle. It's not subtle at all. Like, no, it's no. All in your face. And it's all very matter of fact. And I actually appreciated that because I kept thinking that uh, if this were a movie, you know, and we saw these kinds of characters on mm-hmm. screen, they would be in a Tarantino movie. I mean, I love Tarantino films, but I he is kind of racist. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I, I bet he would like love to get his hands on like a play like this where he, mm-hmm. where like he could get away with having people say you know the n-word like every two seconds yeah the, the, the sand n-word every two seconds in this play which was extremely disturbing how that that there's like a fourth character the person being tied up the spanish man being tied up in the bathroom and they just completely ignore that you never see him you just hear him and that makes it even more disturbing and he's also like also being everyone's objectified in this play. Yes. Now, I, I, I see your point about the tone, but I, I, I actually don't think, like, Paul, Paul Calderon, who directed this, like, handled, knew how to handle the tone. And because the space is so small, it's always going to seem realistic. And you really need to either put something in set-wise, musically, or with lighting in order to, make, in order to denote the fact that this is a surrealist space. Yeah, I can, I can totally see that. Because also, I kept thinking the... Uh, the but I think affected the play the most in a negative way where the scene transitions feel that the play certainly could have benefited from smoother scene transitions with because yeah we don't need all the props to we be don't need, and the thing is the fact that they cared enough to put that love of detail into the props means that they want to make it a, a realistic space and if you if that didn't it shouldn't that shouldn't have mattered it should be focused on not the location, like the physical location, but like the location in the characters' minds and what it looks like in the characters' minds. But overall, I was, I don't know if I was moved, but I was certainly shocked. Yeah, it was memorable. Yes. I don't know, I don't know if memorable in a good way, but well, the play is running until February 9th and tickets are only $18. And so. If you want to see a veteran of the theater, like, try something out and be really shocked, have at it. Just don't sit... In the front row. Yes. And I was next to the wall in the oh, front row. Oh, no. You were trapped. I could not escape. Yep. Woo. Okay. Our next show is Behind the Sheet by Charlie Evan Simpson. And it's playing at Ensemble Studio Theater, and it's a fictional historical drama based on the work of Dr. J. Marion Sims, who is considered the father of modern gynecology. And it is about the women, the slave women he experimented on in order to cure uh, fistulas, which back in the day were holes that ha- that occurred in the vaginal walls during childbirth. It's a fictional account because we don't know anything about these women. So it's just the playwright imagining like what they it must have been like to have to go through that in the community that you build and and the way that you're just 
you learn to live with your pain, which is something that a lot of women still go through, not with fistulas, but just like all, all of the other gynecological things that happen to women's bodies that you people, a lot of people don't talk about and a lot of people don't know about. I really appreciated this play bringing all that to the surface. And what I really liked about the play was that it, it talked about the human body but it didn't exploit these women's bodies. So there's no nudity and everything is very much like literally behind a sheet. <laughs> and so you don't like, there's nothing, it's not graphic, but, but that's great. Cause that's what's so theatrical about it. Like you, you doesn't need to be graphic for you to like feel really uncomfortable. You don't need these women to take off their clothes to, you just need to see the tools that he's working with and know that, Oh, this giant thing is going to be going up a vagina. Yeah. Imagine that everybody. So I really appreciate. Yeah. Are you shaking your head? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not, you know, that I'm, I'm really not like horrified by it. Mm hmm. You know, gynecology, like I, mm -hmm. unlike a lot of men, I really have no problem talking about, you know, women's uh, reproductive organs. Like it's just part of our bodies and it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's who we are. We should be comfortable. We all came about, from a vagina. Yes. And we should all be comfortable talking about, you know, uh, vaginas and all the organs in both uh, women and men without blushing and without just like giggling and all of that and i had no idea any of this had happened and once i figured out what the play was about and i was so angry that mm -hmm. how many like more atrocities like are we gonna find out about just like just when you think you know every horrible story about what white people did to slaves something new comes up that they like they were just like basically using this you know, black women in the same way that Nazis were using Jewish uh, yeah. people during the Holocaust, like exper like experimenting with them like they were plants. So it's not subtle about the fact that the doctor very much says, you know, black women don't feel pain the same way that white women do. So therefore you don't, we don't need to put, give them anesthetics if we're going to be sewing them up. It's uh, cutting them open it, and it'll be fine. And the thing is, that's... That is an assumption that doctors still have. Black people are less likely to be taken seriously when they report pain than white people. That's a thing that happens. And so, like, as a modern audience member, like, you under, like, you understand, like, oh, this is a genesis of that assumption. And so that was also really powerful because then you realize, oh, we haven't, we, we haven't come that far. Probably not. That's horrifying. You know, the, the only thing that I have to say that I didn't, like about the show was that I felt the coda was completely unnecessary, that it wraps it up in a way that I found very didactic. And mm, I did not appreciate that because, because basically the coda is the, the actors who played the slaves, you know, like staying on stage and saying the equivalent of like title cards yeah. in real life yeah. movies. Like, yeah. and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And mm -hmm. I don't think we needed a coda of that sort to let us know that this was important because it's relevant. Like you said, that kind of like threw me off because I was so horrified by everything that I had seen before. Really? Yeah. That I was like, this coda feels very, I don't know, very 
like condescending. I don't know, and I actually quite liked it. It's like, and how many people really read the playbills? And so I, I actually appreciated the reminder that this is a fictionalized account, and we don't know about these women or what it would have been like for them. And we have we don't we don't have any choice but to try and make it up. And so, like, it really brought home the fact that there's a lot of lost history here, and it makes the audience all experience that in the room together. And you know, I feel like with most slave narratives, it's very for white people. It's usually. I feel like most of the time, white people can just look at it and be like, well, good thing it doesn't happen anymore. But it does happen all the time. Yeah, but no one thinks that. Most people don't think that. Like, 12 Years a Slave, you watch it and you think, oh, wow, that really sucked back then. Yeah. But, like, you don't... So I feel like the coda really, like, brought to bear... Like, made us realize that this is... This dude had a statue in Central Park up until last year. And so like it's was we're still, you know, lauding these figures instead of real instead of trying to figure out like, oh, oh, who are the voices that have been lost? So you're saying the code is for white people basically. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and that that way, yeah, like I can see it working, but that's probably why maybe because I don't know. It it, it felt very like echo chambery for me. Maybe mm-hmm. because I already, you know, as a person of color, not a woman, clearly, but as a person of color, like, I know all these things already. And I'm mm-hmm. furious about them, like, constantly. Like, I don't need a reminder about this statue because, like, we're still seeing, like, all those, like, Confederate monuments, like, in the mm-hmm. South. And people are so proud of having them and all of that. So, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, you're right. For me, then, it was, like, unnecessary. Yeah. But now I see why it was important for white people to have it there so you know what the coda works <laughs> so kudos to all the actors it must be so difficult to have to like play these stories and i mean all all, all the actors but especially like the black women on the stage i, I love like the, the main actor like naomi lorraine because you you could kind of see like it's always so interesting because you know she's listening to like a her owner basically basically saying black women don't feel pain and she's like yes yes of course and she has to agree with him because she's a slave but you can see in her you can see in like in her posture or like in her eyes that this is all bullshit and so i just love being able to like see the different layers of in that performance you know what i really liked mm-hmm. the scenes where all the slaves were in their quarters all mm-hmm. the female slaves were in their quarters and the energy and the things that their conversations, I wish we would have seen even more of that. Mm, mm. So I love the scenes where we see all the women talking about life and about the horrible experiments, but also about themselves, about their personalities. Like I love the scenes where we learn who these women are mm-hmm. beyond the lens of the white monster, Dr. Frankenstein person that the play's about. Mm-hmm. And yes, I, I I wish the play had had more scenes with yeah, yeah. just them in their quarters. And that's where I think it differs from other slave narratives, where it's always, you know, master-slave kind of dynamics. And we rarely get to see the... What they actually think of it. Yes. Or them just like even having moments of levity. Because these mm-hmm. women get to laugh at mm-hmm. points which is i don't know like a testament of how oh jesus i guess of our humanity oh. mm-hmm. 
So great play. We highly recommend it. It is running until February 10th. It just got extended. So yay. Congratulations, everyone involved. And tickets are $20 to $40. So you, unless you don't live in New York, you really don't have any excuse to not see it. And and Charlie is a really exciting voice. We are bringing you all the affordable shows. Exactly, quality affordable shows. That is why we created this podcast. Yeah, so we don't want to, we don't want any nonsense about people saying, "Oh, there's no theater in January and February." There is. Just, yeah, you have to go. And, or like, there's no quality affordable theater. Well, lies, not lies. On, not on Broadway, but mm-hmm. if you look beyond Broadway, behind, behind the velvet, behind curtain, the sheet. If you yeah. looked behind the sheet, you're gonna see all the shows. <laughs> All right, so our final show today, which is also kind of medical and sad, is God Said This by Leah Nanaka Winkler, playing at primary stages. And full disclosure, Leah is a friend of mine, so Leah, if you're listening, please stop listening while I talk about your show. Yeah, and Leah is not my friend, even though I met her once and she's lovely, but Leah, you're not my friend, so you can listen to what I have to say. This show is kind of a companion piece to another uh, Nanaka Winkler play called uh, Kentucky. And it's about a Japanese, half Japanese, half white family living in Kentucky. And that first play was about, you know, uh, one of an estranged daughter named Hiro coming home for her sister's wedding. And you, you learn the background about how her dad, who is white, is abusive. And her mom, who, who's Japanese, was just trying to like keep, keep the peace in the house. And her sister is a born-again Christian. And all, all the fun conflicts that come with those kind of personalities. This play, God Said This, is about the same family. And Hiro is back in Kentucky and drama happens because her mom has cancer and the entire family has to face the facts that of mortality and of trying to put aside like the pains of the past in order to like come rally together and move forward and it was really well done the, the great thing is i feel like sometimes with cancer narratives it's just like so heavy, like a lifetime movie. Sometimes, Mo- <laughs> it's like always, <laughs> and like everyone's crying. And yet, there's there's some of that, but it's also it's really funny. I, I really love the balance of it because it doesn't diminish the gravity of what's happening. It just shows you like sometimes like you need any humor in order to cope with the fact that your mom is dying and it sucks, and you have issues with your dad. So. I just, I remember when I was watching, maybe I remember 1998 when I was 12 years old and within one calendar year, four people in my family died from mm-hmm. cancer. I really loved how uh, Leah is such a great freaking writer that she doesn't fall into a single one of the tropes and cliches that we've seen in all these narratives. Not a single one, like mm-hmm. not one. It's like, you know, like there's no, the characters don't talk like, like people who are dying. If you know what I mean, like mm-hmm. the, the mom, uh, the character's name is Masako. She's not talking, you know, she's not giving like Shakespearean speeches, like on her bed. She's talking about regular day to day shit. Yeah. And that is so refreshing. Like it's not, mm-hmm. you know, she's, she's more worried about what her oldest daughter 
is going to say to her dad, who she doesn't like necessarily, then she's worried about, you know, like, oh, my legacy. Like, well, you know, the kinds of, like, speeches we get from white characters who are dying of cancer in movies and, and plays. Mm-hmm. I've never had immediate family members dying of can- die of cancer, but recently when I came home, my mom sat us all down at the dinner table and she's like, you know, your dad's not going to be around for much longer and we have to agree and we have to figure out what what we're going to do when he dies. And we're all just like, mom, he's not dead yet. Can we like talk about this later? And I think like we're all just putting off the fact that our parents have mortality and we don't want to talk about it because talk about it, to talk about it and to and to grapple with the fact that one day they're not going to be around is really scary. And so what I saw as a maturation of the character, the main character, Hero, is realizing that her parents are human and they're flawed and they're mortal and they may not be around and you have to figure out and at some point you, the kid, have to become the parent. And that is really fucking scary. And along with that, which is, I'm glad you brought that up because along with that, yes, like we all suck at dealing with mortality, not only our our own, but I think especially our parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing that, that Leah brings up into play is that, you know, the, adding the humor in a way to that horrible uh, notion that we have to die is that the daughters also have never realized that their parents are actually, are also sexual beings. And I love, human, yeah. I love that scene so much when they're like, okay, sure, it's like shocking and depressing and just terrible that you're dying. But am I even more disturbed by the fact that you and dad had sex? And <laughs> it's just that that dynamic between, you know, like humor and real life, I would say. Uh, not that humor is like the opposite of real life, but uh, mm-hmm. I guess levity. Levity is how we get through is how yeah. we get through things. Yeah. And that dynamic, you know, like in one second, like she goes from levity to just like existentialism and all of that mm-hmm. without any I don't know, grandiose, like, statements and all that. I love that so much. It's like, she's so great at capturing life. And speaking of mortality, like, since you had that conversation with with your mom and your siblings, have I ever told you this one time when I visited my home country and I went to Honduras and we were driving, my mom and I were driving somewhere out and Honduras has this, like, really stunning pine forests and mountains and it's super green and lovely and my mom pointed to a distant hill and she said oh i forgot to tell you as she was pointing that i got you a plot there and i was like i saw like the lovely hill and i was like oh my (laughs) god i'm mad you know like i was like a house in the mountains and the forest and all that and she's like, no, 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 no. I mean, uh, it's a cemetery. I got, <laughs> yeah. My mom bought me a cemetery plot. I, mean, I feel like she should have asked you because, you know, cemetery plot is being buried is so out of not in vogue anymore. It's not. And also, don't buy me a plot <laughs> oh at my the God. graveyard. Um, but I will say, my, my, I have a, my slight criticism with the play is like, There are revelations, other health revelations that happen. I find that it's kind of convenient for this entire family to have like three giant health crises. And there's also a car crash. Like a lot of stuff happens. And so I feel like the cancer was enough. And I don't think I needed what happened between the siblings 
because because I feel like it then takes away from the parents' story, which I think is which I think is a crux of the play. Mm. But I like that. I I never thought about the the crisis like competing with each other in a way. Like I like I like a lot that Leah's such a generous writer that she allows all. Because I was thinking, I mean, now that I'm a let me have like a an important person moment for like two seconds. Okay. Now that I'm like you know an awards nominator. What be, what awards are you nominating people for? I, I'm a nominator for the uh, drama desk. Anyway, what I thought was so special was. That once we don't think about the playbill and like the billing and like the order mm-hmm. of who goes first, would you say that is there anyone in this play, not counting the like the best friend of you know like the straight guy friend of uh, hero, but the family members, I I I wouldn't know which ones are best. Actress and which ones are best feature actress? You know what I'm talking mm-hmm, about? Like, because mm-hmm. everyone gets their equal share, and it's such like a lovely reminder that you know we don't go through life being supporting characters. Maybe we are to some people in their stories, but in our own stories, we are the we are the Meryl Streep's of yeah, our stories. Yeah. And in the play, I was like, oh, but who's supporting and who's not, and all of that. And it was just such a strangely like fun dilemma to have because mm. I don't get to see that often. Like, like a good ensemble piece. Exactly. Where everyone is treated the same. In a way, I think it makes mortality easier to, to like handle. Like, you know, like, hey, dude, you're going to die, but the world does not revolve around you. Like, you're going to die, but there's going to be car crashes. There's going to be, like, alcoholic parents collecting rocks around you. There's going to be, like, jerk, you know, best friends. There's going to be life. There's going to be new people coming up. And I found that to be very relaxing. I was not stressed by mortality. I was kind of relieved to realize i guess or to be reminded that who cares we're gonna die like just go and live life yeah and you have people that love you and they'll be around after you die so it's all gonna be okay okay god says this runs uh, runs at primary stages at the cherry lane theater until february 15th uh tickets are 82 to 127 dollars but fun fact, we have a discount code and you can get $20 tickets to God Said This if you go online and use a code GST Review. So, GST Review, God Said This. You really don't have any excuse this week to not go see some theater unless you don't live in New York, in which case I am sorry. We would like to go to other places, but we need funding. That. Which is another story. Wow, we've been talking a lot, and we still need to get to our interview, Jose. Who did we talk to? Today we're talking to Ariane Moyed, who's the co-founder of Waterwell, a theater company that does all sorts of exciting things. Right now they're doing a drama called The Courtroom, which is a reenactment of a real-life immigration case. But you might also know Ariane from his performances on stage in plays like Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, Guards at the Taj, and Hamlet. And he's also on TV right now in the HBO drama Succession. So we talked to Ariane about a lot of interesting things. So go check it out. 
we are here with Ariane Moyet. For the people who won't get a chance to see yeah, it yet, yet, <laughs> yet, what's what's the courtroom? The courtroom is a reenactment of a deportation proceeding that uh, happened in, uh, from 2004 through 2011. Um, we have taken the transcripts of uh, all of, the, of this case about a young woman, uh, young Filipino woman by the name of Elizabeth Keithley, who um, went to the DMV in the first you know six months that she was here, and at the DMV was asked if she would like to register to vote, and not knowing anything of what any of that meant, mm-hmm. um, thinking that she's basically like signing her getting her state ID, which yeah. is why she was there. And why would they ask? And why would they ask if she's not a... And she showed her Filipino passport and all that. They, You know, she signed where she was told to, didn't know how... You know, wasn't reading it exactly, didn't know, and kept on... You know, it was rushed right through and, you know... A, then gets a voter registration card, and she and her American husband said, well, if they give you the voter registration card, that must mean that you can vote. Mm-hmm. I mean, they must have vetted you and said that that was okay. So she thought she could vote, and so she voted. And by doing that, she didn't realize that she couldn't have done that. And so they put her into deportation proceedings, and she lost the first case. Yeah. yeah. So she was uh, ordered to be deported from the United States back to the Philippines. So I have the transcripts of that uh, of that trial and, and, and the second trial, which goes, uh, which was after the, uh, uh, it was rejected by the Board of Appeals. It goes all the way up to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is like the highest court system of the state of Illinois. So that's what we have reenacted. Um, I have not written a single word. Uh, mm-hmm. Everything that is in there is exactly as written. I have condensed, edited, arranged, and I think I think the reenactment portion of it is the most important por- portion for Waterwell and Lee and I. Is that we aren't we're not looking to do a piece of theater or a play. It is a reenactment. We want it to mm-hmm. feel so authentic and so real and so um, minute and quiet. Whenever we see yeah. courtrooms and fiction, whether it's yeah. television or film or, or theater, there's always like the moment when, you know, like the Jack Nicholson character yeah. just like bang yeah. on the table yeah. or Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, yeah, I like, object. Yeah, exactly. And there's like this like sense of like grandiose yeah. drama. Yeah. And the drama that you found in the courtroom yeah. is a different kind of drama. Yeah. I was so stressed yeah, it's a the entire time. Yeah. And there were no cues. You know, there was no music. Yeah. There were no, like, theatrical speeches, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. But I was, like, so stressed. I was like, I need to. I need a cigarette. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally. And going through, you know, the transcripts mm. uh, when you were putting together the, uh, the reenactment. Yeah. Were you surprised not to find the kind of drama that fiction tells us that happens in courtrooms? Yeah, um, that's a very astute question. Yeah, you know, I, when reading it, was very tense. Mm-hmm. Because I really, again, as an immigrant, uh, you know, and with parents that came here that didn't speak the language super well, I can't tell you how many times my parents have done and said yes to things that they shouldn't have said yes to. Mm-hmm. Just because, not because they're dumb. It's just, it's like so overwhelming and people talk fast. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I found that, you know, reading Elizabeth's testimony, reading John's testimony, the, the, the American husband, I found all of that really tense. And, and I kind of found that to be the most dramatic thing about it. Um, and, and I really feel like if, it, if we can, as artists, you know, in certain pieces, try to find the exact pinpoint truth of what this scenario might be, I think 
it's always tense and it's always, you know, racked with so much like, what is all of this, you know? Oh, Waterwell has done so much work with veterans. They, you've done site specific work mm-hmm. and you also did a Hamlet that was set in Iran mm-hmm. where you played Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And so when you found the company, like, what was, what did you want to do? The, yeah, this. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, yeah. When we were 22, it was a year after 9 11. We mm-hmm. were really genuinely excited about making Tom Ridgely and I, who are the co founders of the company, uh, we were very excited about making theater that changed lives. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and, and doing it in a very specific kind of way. We didn't know what that meant. We didn't know how to do that. We mm-hmm. were 22. You know, <laughs> we were, you know, in the 2000s was a crazy time of theater, in, 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 mm-hmm. in, especially in New York, because you know, you know, that kind of like empathy or that kind of like social engagement, that wasn't cool then, Mm -mm. you know, it was a cynical, and I'm not even being judgmental when I say that, it's a very tongue in cheek kind of time, everything's like it's over there, it's not over here, but Waterwell was doing this like civic engagement, you know, getting grants at the age of like 25, 26 to make all of our shows free for veterans, or all of our shows free for high school students, and and that's the kind of work we've been doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the work has gotten better. (laughs) In 2009, uh, you did an interview with the Los Angeles Times, and the headline was something along the lines of Ariane Moyet wants to show the world the real face of Middle Easterners. Uh And they went into how you you played, you were playing uh, an Iraqi Mm -hmm. uh, person Mm -hmm. in uh, Baghdad. Yeah, Bengal Tiger of the Baghdad Zoo. Yes. It's been a decade Mm -hmm. since that. Mm -hmm. And usually, you know, when the industry finds the face, you know, we got Ariane, we don't need to find anyone else. We got it. Like, our checkbooks (laughs) is done. But 10 years later, Mm. do you find that representation has improved in any way? That's a great question. Yeah, are you still... The face of the Middle East. Yeah, I think it has improved. I think it's like minuscule steps, but I think it has improved. I think the idea of just having Riz Ahmed and and Rami Malek out into the forefront of American society, or I should say, you know, global society, shows the world that we are not to be put into boxes. Do you know what I mean? So I think in that way, Mm -hmm. we didn't have that, you know, 10 years ago. We didn't have any faces to look like, you know, and like really gleam onto and say, oh, there's someone I want to be. I want to be like, you know, I want to be in a Bohemian Rhapsody. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We didn't have something like that back then. So in that way, it has improved. Sadly, I think that though the intentions of, you know, um, decision makers, and those are not always artists, uh, decision makers at a high level, executives and whatnot, I think that their intentions are right. I think that the the tactics in which they use to include Middle Easterners um, are behind. Uh, But in my POV, it's less of a casting problem, and it's more of uh, an executive problem, that I believe that Middle Easterners or whatever, any ethnicity, should have more access to being at the top level. There's Mm -hmm. a reason why Oprah, who is one of my favorite people in the world, why Oprah is does a lot of work about black America. She is black and she has access to it. And so she's giving voices to Terrell and, and, uh, and, and amazing artists throughout. Um, 
it, it's hard because it's difficult to have those people that can fight for you up there and to tell the stories in the truthful kind of manner that will know what it is to be a Middle Eastern or or whatever the the, 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 mm-hmm. the, the, the ethnic background might be that of that person. And so the reality is in that way we've been really, really, really slow. And 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 I don't think that has changed. And quite honestly, I I can tell you this year alone I'm still getting, you know, uh, people reaching out for, you know, for me to do jobs for them in film and television that are shockingly misrepresenting the Middle East. Um, I've I'm been very clear since 2007, really, that I, I just don't do those things. Like, and no, I don't think this is right. I just want you to let you know this doesn't sound, uh, you know, Iranian or Middle Eastern at all to me. I don't know anyone that would talk like this. I'm just letting you know you might want to judge check out some, you know. Um, Did it work? Uh, sometimes, I mean, I don't really know. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. And the other thing is, I don't dog the actors that want to mm-hmm. get those jobs. We all have to do whatever, okay, you know, I, I tell my wife this all the time. I wish sometimes, like, I cared a little less <laughs> Just because the jobs are kind of like, that's some cash over there. <laughs> I got two kids. <laughs> I feel like there's a gradient of people that I disagree with. Mm. Though there are the the, mm. the Trumpers who mm-hmm. I mean not the Trumpers, but the people who will sit who will just paint a broad brush on a on a population. Totally, and you and it feels like you can't talk to them on both sides of the equation. But yes, I hundred yeah. percent agree with you. And then there are people who are a little bit more open that will ask questions, but then that they might not be the right questions, but at least there's curiosity. And so, do you have a line of when you will not engage? Um, I don't know the answer to that, to be quite honest, because I believe that people that are uh, completely opposite, op- opposed to all my, you know, moral and civic beliefs, um, are, I have to believe that they're not bad people. Mm-hmm. I have to believe that. And I have to believe that they just don't know about it. You know, uh, I will answer another part of your question by kind of like, uh, giving a, uh, giving you a, uh, one of the responses that a lot of people have said about the show. A lot of people have been like, well, why haven't you done a case about the border? A lot of people are like, why don't you do a case about the six-year-old that was on trial by herself? And, and, and in that way, yeah, I do see a line. Because if you can't empathize with the six-year-old that's in front of a judicial system by him or herself, then I don't know how to converse with you. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know how to... If you can't see that that's an atrocity and that's trauma-inducing, if you can't see that, and we, we can't be honest, I don't feel that there's any gray area there. Mm-hmm. So what, I'm not going to do that case. Because that case, I believe that all human beings are going to be like, that sucks for this little kid forever. Literally, yeah. forever. Um, but a case like this one, where it's, she voted. She seems like a good person. She's a nice human. She didn't mean to. Can we figure out a way to talk about this? Mm-hmm. I think that's more exciting for me. And I think those... So I guess the line would be six-year-olds being detained and putting, you know, on trial. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Stories like Kids. that. You know? yes. um, so you came when you were six uh-huh. and you, you didn't speak English. And yeah. usually, because I'm, I'm, I was also an immigrant, I had older sisters who mm. did feel like... There, there was like a lane that you stayed in, which is you do a practical job so you can help your parents and, you know, build a lot and actually build a generational wealth here. Yeah. So why did you become an actor? 
for oh, that how? generational wealth. <laughs> exactly. I just wanted you... to pass down those big, big residual <laughs> dollars. <laughs> Law and Order SVU, baby. Syndication money. <laughs> Hello. Is it on TBS again? <laughs> um, that's ridiculous. Um, I think, um, you know, I have a complicated immigration story as mm-hmm. I'm sure we all have these really wild, like book worthy stories. Uh, my parents were married at an unbelievably young age, uh, in their teens and they had three kids before the age of 18. Mm-hmm. And then I was born at 35. Yeah. And so that, 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 uh, that already is like a complicated scenario there. Uh, my, one of my brothers fought in the Iran, Iran, Iraq war. Mm. One of my sisters stayed in my my only sister stayed in Iran when what? we all came to the states because she got married. Okay, and she came seventeen years later. It took her. It took us seventeen years to get her to the states. So if you ever hear about like vetting processes, nobody vets like the United States of America. Oh God, we are <laughs> we are vetting machines. So so I really at a very young age uh, became like the translator of the house, kind of like culturally, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and also uh, you know just like plain old like translator yeah, paperwork <laughs> paperwork yeah, yeah. yeah like dealing with like you know bills and stuff so mm-hmm. again which seems like super shocking or whatever but it's you know it's a pretty common thing for immigrants mm-hmm. i think to go through Even though at the time i'll be honest with you i wanted nothing to do with it you know what i mean i was so embarrassed by it all you know mm-hmm. uh, when we were doing that hamlet you know um that dual language hamlet that we were doing you know it it we got a chance to, all these iranians were in the room with us mm-hmm. and for the first time we got a chance to be like yeah and say stuff that we were embarrassed to admit like, oh, we were embarrassed being Iranian as kids. It was, mm-hmm. and you know, Iran was not like, you know, Iran, Iran hostage. You got a lot of like baggage there. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh, Vietnam has that as well. <laughs> um, and so anyway, all of this to say that, you know, uh, to talk that through was really kind of therapeutic in a way and kind of translated inside of the piece of, of, of our Hamlet. So. so to to wrap up, I guess, in that, yeah. uh, along that line, for many children who yeah. saw you play Hamlet, mm. you know, you were like the person who showed that they could also play Hamlet. Uh, thanks, man. So who was your Aryan growing uh, up? Who was like the first person who looked like you? Yeah. That made you believe that you could also do this? God, that's such a great question. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's so, I mean, we don't, we didn't have anybody. Right. So- that. I don't know. How did I, you do it? I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, 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 we didn't, I didn't have anyone like, we didn't have any, you know, it's like, we, you're right. The only people, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling because I'm trying to like think while I'm, I've never been asked that. Um, I, I can only go back to say that like the only people that I grew up with and were like real like heroes for me were uh, my mom and my dad. Honestly, my mom and my dad because it would just seem, you know, looking back, all that seems so hard. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It all seems super difficult. I say this to our students at our, at our education program. I say, think about it like this. Imagine if you and your family had to pick up right now and say, we're moving to China and we're going to live in this city and we 
don't know the language, we don't know the culture, we don't know anything about it. Now this is what we're doing for the rest of our lives. Complicated. <laughs> Stressful. Trauma-inducing. Um, Resilient-making. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I saw the resilience of my parents in that, you know? Um which was kind of like miraculous on the art kind of thing, you know, because my parents, you know, I don't know how it is in your guys' culture, but everything came like 15 years, like later. (laughs) So like my parents were like madly in love with like, I love Lucy, (laughs) like in like the early eighties. So I grew up with like watching a lot of, I love Lucy and I love and, and, and Charlie Chaplin. And, and so I thought those, all of them were like, my heroes. I was like, these guys can make anybody laugh. Um, those are who I kind of look up to, you know? Um, mm-hmm. That's such a, I don't know what kind of answer that is, but. You wanted to be Charlie Chaplin when you grew up? Kind of. Uh-huh. I have a huge Charlie Chaplin poster in our house. I got Charlie <laughs> Chaplin stories. I've read two books. I'm like, I'm, uh-huh. a, I'm a Charlie Chaplin fanatic. Okay. Not a great person, but, mm. you know, complicated person, as I said, but, uh, but an amazing artist. Yeah. Maybe you should bring back the musical at some point. Uh, I, Oh, I would love that. <laughs> like, you will play him. <laughs> so what's the next step for the courtroom? That's a great question. Um, uh, we are going to be doing one more uh, uh, performance on the 19th of February at the Green Space, which we're very excited about. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I guess the next bigger steps is how do we take this production or even this this these tr- this this uh, transcript and uh, put it into a bunch of different cities across the country and have everyone do it okay, so please if you are interested in reenacting the courtroom let us know like we are interested in putting this mm-hmm. show into your community and we will make it as easy as possible for you to do that um, and and I, I will I, I give you a guarantee you know one of our shows was done at the Thurgood Marshall courthouse which mm-hmm. is some some place that's that where you saw it yes it's some people call it like the second most important courtroom in America. Do it in the White House. Do it in the White House. We do want to do it in <laughs> Do it in DC. front of the White House. Yes. We want to do it with... Bring RBG. Yeah, oh, RBG oh, would love oh, this show. God. RBG would she love this theater. show. I would, she would love it. Uh, and she probably knows some of the judges that mm. are like... <laughs> Especially in the Seventh Circuit. Um, yeah, totally. Going down to D.C., doing it in, in places like that. You know, like in the Congress. Why not do it in Congress? Mm-hmm. Just put it up in Congress. Oh, I was having this conversation with, like, this nurse who she doesn't go to the theater so she, she, she doesn't know anything and we were talking casually about how I saw Lee Pace's penis on, in Angels in America and, and you know it was a very nice penis and she and then she's like wait you can show nudity on stage Girl. yeah it blew her mind I'm like yeah I've seen multiple penises and then it made me think wait a minute I've seen more penises on stage than I have on screen if, if you don't count, like, the art house films. And porn. And porn. <laughs> right. Right? Right? I mean, probably. Yeah, you see a lot of movies. Like, in terms of nudity, oh, yeah, how no, much... There's no dick in movies. There's no dick in movies. No. Why no. is that? Because the MPAA is very... Once there's a dick, it either gets, like, an NC-17. Yeah, it usually gets an NC-17, and then, like, people have to fight to get an R. So a dick means that people won't get to see the movie because... It'll be inaccessible because, like, the ratings just no one wants to like distribute it and no one wants to show it. So, yeah, 
I mean, boobs are PG thirteen. Boobs, are, boobs, it, and bush are PG thirteen. Yeah, but dick is like NC seventeen usually. Right, and you think because like we don't rate, there's no ratings in theaters, so people can basically do anything. I think so. Yeah. 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 Why are penises so powerful? Or like what? Because society allowed them to be that powerful. So if if it's powerful, then it's not shown very often. You think? Yeah, because it's like the penis is like a congress person or like a senator that you have to like really like go find it because they're so (laughs) important that you have to like set up an appointment with them to like see it when no dicks should be people dicks should be people dicks are on stage if you want to see dicks you can see them on stage i think theater is more the realm of like immediate reality while like movies are like this is a fantasy because like it's all in the past and you're not seeing it and blah 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 blah. okay because movies are very mediated by cuts and yeah, exactly so framing like, you can't like if you know like if a character like that lee pace scene in angels in america had to like take their clothes off the 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 stage can't like go to a fade out yeah or the stage can't like do like a cro- close-up of his face of his face exactly so it's there i mean like and if you're taking off your clothes it's there i mean there's a way to go around it like sometimes they're like discreet and they like, turn around and like they just show butt <laughs> But I think it's more about that, like that, like immediacy. Like it's on stage. Like we, what are we gonna do? Like are we gonna like cut your dick off and like put it back on after the show's done? I don't know. You can tuck it. You can. But where? <laughs> but where is it? Like, I mean, it's not like they're like Barbies and candles. Or it could it could be like you know when you go to a museum and, and you see like some of those statues, those leaf. Grecian statues. Can you imagine, like, if a man takes up his, like, underwear in front of you, he has a leaf? <laughs> this leaf is my penis. Right, that would be, like, unless you're, like, he's, like, that tree person from, like, Guardians of the Galaxy. I am Groot. Groot, yeah. <laughs> I am Groot. Groot is another name for a penis. Oh, God. I've just been ruminating on it, because why, why is it that there are more penises on stage than women's bodies? Because I've seen a lot of theater, and the, the the penis ratio overshadows the boob ratio. Because also I feel that in terms of, you know, like, on-screen nudity, mm-hmm. like, everything is under control, supposedly, right? When yeah. you're shooting something, and, like, there's, like, a giant crew, and, like, there's lighting and stuff. And I feel that being naked on a stage for a woman might feel more threatening. Because, like, mm-hmm. it's like your body is, like, there. And, you know, like, you don't know what some, you, you know what I mean? Like, you don't know if there's going to be, like, some crazy person, like, in the audience, like, recording the show or taking pictures or, I don't know, uh, it feels more threatening. Like, you know, like, you wouldn't want to be, it's like, I think it's the equivalent of, like, you know, like, how men, when they're drunk, for instance, they mm-hmm. can just, like, whip it out and pee, like, in a corner. <laughs> I feel that rightfully, like, women are more, are more terrified of just, like, disrobing in public because men are fucking crazy right well or maybe it's also because of nudity laws and in america like like most places in america like you could walk around shirtless as a man it's and there's no problem but if you're walking around shirtless as a woman then you go to prison exactly and instagram bans your nipples exactly and so do you think it's also like part of like the puritanical aspect of theater where where like a man's body is seen as safer than a woman's body 
Yes, that, but also, I don't know, I think also, it's it's that. It's, you know, like, it's also, like, when you read, like, reviews, when sometimes, like, the critic um, just goes in on and on and on and on describing a woman's body, and mm-hmm. we never see them describing men's bodies. So, I think if you're, like, a female actor, and you know you're going to have, like, a nude scene, you know that an asshole white straight guy is going to write about your body probably and Mm -hmm. i think they don't want to be a part of that like i don't think any actress wants some guy writing about their bodies rather than you know writing about their work because i mean we always talk about like dicks on stage but how often Mm -hmm. have you read a review or like a piece uh, about talked about it yeah never right i mean except now we're talking about dicks on stage now but i mean we are doing because you're like you're women i'm a gay man mm-hmm. like it's part of like our conversation and like real life also yeah but you know like a straight guy or even like a quote-unquote like respectable like gay guy writing uh for like any like major like outlets they're not gonna be they pretend that they're like better than you know sex mm-hmm. and better than like acknowledging that hey like we all are excited in a way by human bodies Mm -hmm. it's also maybe it's also like a like who what group of people dominate the space and i and for the film industry it's dominated by straight men straight men are the directors for the most part and so what is titillating and exciting to that gaze are are boobs and for the theater where it's it's most theater directors are gay men and most playwrights are gay men and so the and producers and and so like what is exciting to the producers and to the w- mostly female audiences who will come see a play or like what's seen as desirable i don't know because like it also like when when penises appear on stage it's also always like very like what's the word for that uh it's rarely erotic it it's, is yeah yeah it's, yeah yeah i mean even though you're saying that Lee Pace's penis was like nice, it was like a flaccid penis. Like yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah, and we don't see. So again, I think it's just that it's just like men on stage who uh, show their naked bodies. I think feel like they're just putting themselves at the service of the work. And, the art. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they're not gonna like have a leaf down mm-hmm. there. They're not gonna be wearing they're they're not gonna tuck. So it's just like I don't even think they think about it. They're like, oh okay, I have to like change into a different costume or I have to be naked for some reason. Here it is. But it's not like it's not like in the movies where the boobs are there to like tantalize mm-hmm. and to like titillate. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen like penises? On stage. Erotic penises? Yeah. I mean, I've never seen an erect penis. I think... Did I... you go to the uh, Six Degrees of Separation on Broadway like a couple years ago? No. Was there an erect penis on stage? Yes. Uh... What? Because I feel like that an erect penis is a very threatening thing. But it was like... Well, okay. What was the context? What was the context? So there's this scene because you know the playwright, mm-hmm. and there's this scene where the guy, the the guy who's like pretending to be like Sidney Poitier's uh, relative, I think he sneaks a man into the house or something. I don't remember the exact say, the exact scene, but he's caught, and people don't necessarily know he's gay. I think, but mm-hmm. he's caught with another man. 
So when people catch him, the other man, the naked man, just like runs. And we, I mean, it wasn't like Boeing erect, but it was like not a flaccid penis. Do you think that was like a directorial choice? Like, what was the conversation? Well, I mean, there's. Or a- is, is it like an act, or like you just, as an actor, you just get caught up in the moment and therefore reactions? Happen. I think a little bit of both, because he's supposed to be having sex when he gets caught. Mm-hmm. So, and he runs to like cover himself. So, like, you briefly see him like sprint across the stage with like, you know, not a very soft penis. <laughs> And that, kids, is why intimacy directors are important. <laughs> because an erect penis can be seen as a very... It can range from awkward to threatening. So, therefore, I think it's a good thing now the industry is finally talking about like having someone there to mediate and coordinate. So that if you happen to get a hard-on in a scene, we can talk about it. Right. Because it shouldn't be awkward. No. I mean, it's just like... But like it's part of life. But it's like sometimes it it might make it might make people uncomfortable if they didn't know that it was coming. If you know you're just acting. Coming. (laughs) Oh Jesus! (laughs) I saw a show last year that was it was uh, at NYU Skirball, and it was Mm -hmm. a show I forgot. It was called P Project, and it was this artist who paid people. It was part of like the the Karl Marx Festival or something. And this, there was a Karl Marx fest? And it was incredible. Anyway, so this guy, uh, I forgot the name of the artist, uh, Evo something? It was not, not Evo Van not not Evo. Evo Hoof. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've seen penises in Evo Van Hoof shows too. They were, that were kind of problematic. <laughs> yeah. No, but this guy, I forgot his name, but the, the show is called P Project. And he mm-hmm. uh, came in with $1,000 in cash, I think. And throughout the course of the show, he would offer people money to do things on stage to prove a point about, you know, how capitalism works Mm -hmm. and how people, I'm not kidding. Like there were people just like women, just like shoving each other to make it to the stage faster. He asked two people in the audience to come on stage and this young man and this young woman showed up and he's like, now get naked and pretend you're having sex. How much was he giving them? Like $200. $200. Yeah. Okay. Would you do it? And me? Yeah. I don't know, but... Did they do it? That's another time when I've seen an erect penis. <gasps> and and they weren't actors, though. That would have been real... Oh, that could be... Assault? It was a lot of things. And then the artist like instructed these two young people to you know simulate sex. And he would be like, that's not how people have sex. Go louder. Like, spank mm. her. And... You know, or that kind of thing, or, or or he would tell her like, lick his ear, or and you know they were so game to do it, and it was very, it was very strange, it was very uncomfortable. Yeah, for the audience, I think, and probably for people on stage. But they were, you know, it was like it was. Could, con- there's consent, yes. And you could see the dollar signs also, like in yeah. the eyes. These were like probably like college students mm-hmm. who like two hundred dollars. When you're, like, in college, it's, like... Sure. Yeah, like, there's your weekend, right? Like, you can go drinking for, like, a whole week. Right, right. But, uh, yeah, it was was a lot. It was... It was a lot. I don't think you'll be surprised to realize that both of the people who went on stage were white. Mm -hmm. And in that show, I think there was only maybe two moments when people 
of color came to the stage, it was mostly white people fighting each other to make money. I mean, was it predominantly white audience though? Because we are talking about the theater. It was no, because it was no. NYU, and there were a oh, lot of students. Oh, so it was, yeah, it was like it was always the white people who like pushed people and like pulled people. There was like this. I mean, white people did invite, invent capitalism. Exactly. So I think the show, in that sense, proved its its point. It was like white people will literally do anything for money. Including show your penis on stage. Yes. Okay, now I'm now I'm trying to think about penises of color. On stage. Yeah. And and like the politics of that too. The politics of like I, I think perhaps that is also why there's fewer I mean, besides the fact that there's like fewer roles for actors of color to begin with, so fewer instances where they will be called to do that. But I think it's also a little bit more considered because, you know, like if you ever read, read that Wesley Morris essay about like the black penis and its representation throughout American history and how it's always been seen as a threatening thing. I think like the pol- there's more politics when you're putting a person of color on stage because it could quickly veer into fetish, exoticism territory. Yes. And also probably, I'm pretty sure that they pay people like Lee Pace way more money <laughs> to show his penis than they would an actor of color, for instance. Because it's like, it's the, you know, it's the white penis. Like, we never see it. Like, let's see it. Like, it's... It's neutral. Yeah. <laughs> But it's also like something that people want to see because they've never seen it. Because Hollywood is so good at like desexualizing men mm-hmm. and like pretending that men don't have like genitals, or even though they're power- or, or ridiculing male male genitals. Everyone's but, genitals, but yeah. mostly you know male penises. Oh, because we did see a, uh, an African American penis in Master of the. Crossroads. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. That was political. Yeah. Let us know what you think. If you've seen penises on stage, what was the context? And what did you think? And was it necessary? And why do you think there are more penises on stage than on screen? Give it, yeah, give us your thoughts. Leave us a comment. You can email us at tokentheaterfriends at gmail.com. And if you... Uh, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Review us, I guess. But anyway, theater's more fun when you take with your friends. Bye. Bye-bye.